0: The kind of subtitle of the book is a cultural history of Carrie the Musical because I wanted to look at why, you know, the factors that drove this show to be created in the first place, why it was it was born, why it flopped in the way that it did, why it received this kind of visceral reaction from from the press and from some audience members and then why it came back to life again, why that um, that kind of fan and pain happened that kind of drove to it being revived so many years later, and now why it's performed in a different form all around the world. It's a really unique story. And and as I've said, you know, can you really call something a flop if, if it does have that sort of life to it?
1: Want to listen to this Ivory Tower Boiler Room or True Crime in Academia episode ad free Head on over to our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash Ivory Tower Room to listen to all of our podcast episodes without any ads. You get access to our video episodes, our bonus episodes, and even more exclusive content, including merchandise. It only starts at $5 a month. So head on over to our Patreon. Again, it's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Room. And while you're at it, you know it would be such a help is if you could rate and review the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And make sure that you follow us and share out our podcast to all of your friends. It truly does help. And I want to thank you all. It means so much that you're listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I hope that you enjoy this episode. Hi, this is Dr. Andrew Rimby and I'm so excited to shout out the Gay and Lesbian Review, who is helping to sponsor the ITBR podcast. For all of you out there, the Gay and Lesbian Review is a bi-monthly magazine where you can discover new things about gay and lesbian literature, history, and culture, and The GL Review publishes essays in a wide range of disciplines, as well as a slew of reviews of books, plays, and movies, and a number of special features, such as artist profiles and their popular art memo column. Each issue of the magazine brings you consistently intelligent, lively, thought-provoking articles focused on a unifying theme. For example, their September-October issue centers on the theme Cracking the Closet. So starting the 19th century, a number of artists and writers found ways to crack the closet by expressing their sexuality between the lines or in the interstices of their work. For example, Ignacio Darnad, who is a friend of the ITBR podcast, he's been on our show, writes all about illustrator JC Lyendecker, whose work for ivory soap and arrow collars gave him plenty of opportunities to draw pictures of well dressed and at times scantily dressed American men. And you also can find an article by Vernon Rosario, who has been on the podcast, and he talks about the quest for sex in the Middle Ages. So To subscribe, visit glreview.org, that's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org. Click subscribe, so on their website, go all the way over to the right-hand side and you'll see the button subscribe. Click subscribe and enter the promo code ITBR50 because you're getting 50% off your subscription to the print or digital edition of the Gay and Lesbian Review magazine. I can't wait for you all to have your copy of the Gay and Lesbian Review magazine and make sure that you take a picture when your magazine arrives or when you're reading it online and tag the GL Review on Instagram and ITBR and we'll share it out in our stories. Enjoy your reading, everyone. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I am really excited to be joined with Chris Adams, who I've known in the podcast world for at least probably three years, two and a half years, um, when his podcast that he co-hosts with Holly Morgan called Out for Blood, the story of Carrie the Musical, made its shocking arrival. Um, We'll get into all of that. But I first want to let you know that he met, actually, Holly, his co-host, when he directed her in a student production of Bat Boy the Musical at the Edinburgh Fringe in 2006, ever since they've shared a passion for offbeat musicals, particularly those where everybody's dead by the curtain call. I love that. Uh, Well, that makes sense with Carrie. In the real world, Chris works in marketing in London's glittering West End, and he's worked similar roles for several London venues and producers. He's also a keen director in the city's thriving amateur and community theater scene. So, without further ado, here is Chris. Hi, Chris.
0: Hi, Andrew. Thank you for having me. Wow, one introduction.
1: Well, you know, I have to be suspenseful while also (laughs) hitting all the high points or flop points in the case of Carrie. So, you know, I remember having just learned about out for blood, your podcast with Holly. Um, first, because I had a fascination and love as so many in your book do, um, for everyone out there, uh, we're going to be talking about Chris's new book, uh, Titled Out for Blood, Out for Blood, a cultural history of Carrie the Musical. And you do more than 80 interviews in this book. And what I'm fascinated with, maybe to start, is just like myself, when Carrie the Musical entered everyone's vernacular, like people remember vividly when they remember listening to the musical and just, it was very secretive to discover it after it left the Broadway stage. Yeah. So like, you know, let's start there. Where do you remember learning about Carrie the musical?
0: I think like you say, so many people have found the show kind of by accident and it becomes this kind of almost like this little cult of people that that knew about the show and kind of desperately wanted to tell people about it. So when I was um, back many years ago when I was a teenager, I was um, a huge reader. I used to read Stephen King's novels, Um, But I was also like a theatre kid at school. So um, I used to love going to the theatre and reading about theatre and learning all I could about theatre. So I think, you know, the day I discovered there was this weird mashup of the two passions in my life was really exciting. And to discover this really unlikely sounding show, a musical based on Stephen King's Carrie, which, you know, on paper sounds like the most unstageable story you could, you know, put on a a Broadway stage. So I was just really excited. And this was, you know, kind of as the internet was emerging, I, I remember we had the internet at home and school, but it was those early days of the internet when it was like Geocities and those kind of early websites. So I kind of made it my mission to find out everything I could about this musical. And there were lots of little clips of the show that audience members had made in the 80s photos and reviews and things like that and it kind of lodged in the back of my mind and um later when I went to university and as you say when I met Holly we kind of got a bit obsessed afresh with this show because we were both similar we both loved um kind of offbeat musicals and and strange theatrical tales and we again we kind of set about researching the show but it wasn't until much much later again uh, until Covid when we got together and we said wouldn't it be cool to kind of um we were busting at home with not much to do as all of us were in the same situation. And we thought, wouldn't it be cool to kind of track down the people who'd been involved in the creation of the show and kind of find out if the stories we'd heard about this infamous flop in in quotation marks were true and to kind of bust some of the myths that had developed over the years. And we just kind of set about doing it. And then we got enough Um, we, we initially kind of thought we'd make maybe four or five episodes of a podcast about Carrie and we ended up, I think we're now on about 15 or 16. Um, so we kind of, yeah, we, we were really, um, it was, it was so gratifying to be able to speak to people who were just so passionate about this show that had been dismissed by so many people over the years as being this unmitigated disaster to be able to speak to people who'd been there and kind of hear their side of the story was just so fascinating. And yeah, that's kind of how the story of Out for Blood started. And what's
1: really interesting is the audience, their appetite for Carrie the Musical, um, everything in your podcast, and especially you draw this out so nicely in your book, is the cultural history surrounding how Stephen King's novel, how it leads into the film version, how um those from the film version. I'm thinking specific, specifically of Larry Cohen, and then oh, eventually yes. Betty Buckley get involved, and that it's really this evolution and journey. And I think you start your you start your book with um, there was uh, so much hope going into this musical <laughs> in 1984 in the Broadway workshop. And what's interesting though is like the audience really did drive the fandom around this, like the cast. From everything I've heard in your podcast, from my research, from having Eric Champney on my show and like his deep dive with his film and the master cut and all of that, that the cast really took a little while, especially Lindsay, I would say, who everyone out there, if you don't know, Lindsay played Carrie on Stratford and Broadway in the original. That like it was very traumatizing for a lot of the cast and even the production team. So, you know, when you were creating your podcast with Holly and then you started to do these interviews, did you find that it did take some coaxing for the cast and the creative team to eventually understand that this was about passion, not about mocking?
0: Yeah, I think it did. I mean, some people were um, really keen and and talked about the show straight away, really enthusiastically. Some people were less keen to talk about it because... The show just has a history, as you say, of being mocked. It became it kind of became this huge joke. Um, and we were always very careful, I hope, to kind of, you know, our podcast was lighthearted and hopefully funny, but we always tried to stay on the right side of, you know, we never wanted to make fun of the show. We certainly didn't want to make fun of the people involved in it. We, we approached the story as fans of this show and as fans of the people involved and and, and kind of admirers of the, of the work that they've done. Um, and at the back of our minds was always this question about, you know, can something be called a flop if it is still talked about all of this time later and if it's still affected if it's affected so many people so deeply over the years can something be kind of dismissed so quickly I think that was what really drove us um and and yeah some people um as you say you know the the cast were very young it's a show about teenagers high school students mostly and um so they were very young when they did the show Lindsay was only 17 when she was given the part which is insanely young to be given this this leading lady, she was the RSC's youngest ever leading lady at the time. Um, she was given this Broadway leading role thrust into the spotlight. And then of course it was all kind of snatched away from her. Um, this, this sort of dream was taken away much like like Carrie's story. Um, and, you know, I, I don't want to speak on behalf of Lindsay but from what she's told us that was, you know extremely traumatizing as a, as a young person and took a long time to get over, you know, her immediate thought was, you know, people are going to blame me for this. This is going to scar my career for life. Um, But luckily they didn't. And people, you know, Lindsay's performance, Betty's performance, some of those performances are some of the greatest performances that have ever happened on a Broadway stage, according to to so many people. Um, And and Lindsay has gone through an incredible career, um, thankfully. And, you know, but it's still kind of, I think in their minds, there's still a hesitation about talking about this show because they think people are out to kind of um to to make fun of it and some people were have kind of uh, have quickly moved on and they they were very out for talking about it and joking about it and talking about all of the silly things that happened uh to them and and that they were part of. other people it did take some coaxing but I think when they realized that we were out to treat the story uh respectfully, they were happy to talk to us and I think that's partly why the book was possible because, we released the podcast, we sort of made the podcast as we were releasing it. So it was very hard to kind of insert people as they appeared to us. Once we started talking to people, of course, they were introducing us to more people. We ended up with this huge kind of list of people that we would have loved to speak to because we told the, the story of the show chronologically in the podcast. It was sort of too late to to insert lots of them. So being able to go back and speak to all of those people who had listened to the podcast, enjoyed it, and realized that we were out to tell the kind of truthful story of what happened back in the 80s and and since then was really great in terms of um, of of filling up that book because I was able to patch together all of the the gaps that we may have had in the podcast to start with and and kind of tell a wider story and I think you know the the kind of subtitle of the book is a cultural history of Carrie the Musical because I wanted to look at why you know the factors that drove the show to be created in the first place why it was it was why it flopped in the way that it did, why it received this kind of visceral reaction from, from the press and from some audience members, and then why it came back to life again, why that, um, that kind of fan campaign happened that kind of drove to it being revived so many years later, and now why it's performed in a different form all around the world. It's a really unique story. And, and as I've said, you know, can you really call something a flop if, if it does have that sort of life to it?
1: Well, and you start with Lindsay's quote. I like to think of it now as the most successful flop on Broadway. And I think that really sums up how much it is in our zeitgeist in conversation with Broadway musicals. And when I, you know, approach this with students, I approach it with the source material. So Stephen King's novel, I remember in his book on writing, He really lays out how he had thrown away the early draft of Carrie and then his wife, Tabitha, actually picked it out of the trash can and said, no, I think you have something here. It's almost a Cinderella story gone wrong and it's very Greek, like in the beginning of his concept, Stephen King really was drawing upon like these ancient Greek almost Persephone meets Cinderella. So it had yeah. this really twisted fairy taleness. And I thought it was so interesting though, like if that's the beginning of our source material, which is already an avant-garde horror novel, um, it makes sense why it's evolution, like even when we're seeing what happens with the film version, has so much, cinematography that Mm -hmm. like I'm thinking of even like Betty's death scene or when we see Sissy Spacek in the prom, like all the different shots of every person's face, like everything. It's experimental, even in, you know, the crucifixion of her mother in the death scene that then the musical becomes experimental in its own way with right. The dancing is experimental of like pop, pop, um. Flashy 80s Debbie Allen choreography meets the tragic opera. And yeah, yeah, yeah. But it does let all the performers like it's so refreshing. And I maybe that's why we are so enthralled, Chris, because yeah. it lets the performers shine.
0: Exactly. You know? so, so many of them said, you know, we may have been a disastrous musical, but we were never boring. And I think, you know, mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons why the show is has lived on in people's hearts and minds, because you know there were hundreds of shows that closed quickly in the 80s and since then but nobody talks about them anywhere near as much as this and I, as you say i think it's because it was so daring and so different for its time it had to be i think because because the story was there was you know uh, you know it had a daring director it had a, a director known for working on classical plays mainly and um he brought that knowledge and experience to the show it didn't particularly translate in the minds of kind of casual theater goers at the time. And that's one of the kind of many reasons that it it ended up closing because people, you know, at first watch couldn't perhaps understand what was happening in front of them. It was a very complex and and avant-garde staging. I think since then, lots of people have have gone on to reassess the show. And I hope we may have played a little part in that in introducing the show to people and, and having them watch it and listen to it and kind of rethink what the show can be. I think, you know, since then, with the show being rewritten and and tweaked, so many new directors have had the opportunity to put their stamp on the story. And I think that says a lot about Stephen King's original source material. Um, You know, it's, it's a story that so many people, despite it ending in massacre and murder, it's so many people see themselves in aspects of that character or see, you know, particularly people, I think, who've been involved in theatre and those kind of theatre kids from school who might have been picked on and might have been bullied and maybe felt other or different. Um, you know, we heard from so many people who just love this story and and love the, the material it was changed into when it went on stage. And I think part of that is that feeling of of being slightly different to to your peers and 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 seeing yourself in that character, even if your own story doesn't end quite as dramatically as Carrie's story does. I think there are so many aspects of the story that people can kind of cling to. And I think that translates again into the life of the musical and the fact that the musical was misunderstood and, and, and slammed by critics, but also kind of redefined in the future. I think so many people Relate to that aspect of the story too. So it's a really, it's a re- really unique melting pot of different aspects of people's personalities and psychologies. And I think that's what I really love about the story of Carrie is that it's not just a straightforward tale of a musical that that flopped. There's so much more to it.
1: Hi everyone, this is Dr. Andrew Rimby and I am so excited to be talking about Broadview Press. You might be asking, what is Broadview Press, Andrew? Broadview is an independent academic publisher in the humanities that produces high quality, pedagogically useful books for use in university and college classrooms. They publish in the humanities, mainly English studies, writing, philosophy, and history, just to name a few genres, and recently, I had on Dr. Jason Holt who wrote all about the philosophy of sport and what better summer episode than to talk about what happens when a philosopher dissects the beautiful aesthetics of sporting culture. In the spring, I had on Drs. Kyle Stedman and Tanya Rodriguez to talk about what is sound writing, how to make audio projects in the college classroom, how to even have your students create podcasts. Hi, this is Dr. Andrew Rimby and I want to thank you all for tuning into my interview with Chris Adams. I hope you all are enjoying it. There's more to come, don't worry. I just wanted to quickly jump on and let all of you know who are listening, who are probably either part of the LGBTQ community, your theater lovers, I'm sure your TV and film lovers. I have an exciting premiere happening on Wednesday on Wednesday, I am launching the first episode of the Queer as Folk rewatch. So Ivory Tower Boiler Room, we're going to start rewatching iconic queer TV shows or just, you know, queer cultural TV film uh, Broadway shows like Carrie as well that have a large LGBTQ audience base. So on Wednesday, I'm going to be joined with Christian Garcia from That Old Gay Classic Cinema podcast, and we're going to premiere season one, episode one, recapping Queer as Folk. So that's a call for all of you out there listening from the audience. If you really love Queer as Folk, you want to join me for, for an upcoming Episode of it, please reach out to me. DM me on Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room or at Ivory Tower Boiler Room um, on TikTok. You can also email me, Ivory Tower boiler Room at gmail.com. And there's also two upcoming book clubs. Ivory Tower Boiler Room, we are reading Parachute Women, which is about Marianne Faithful, Marsha Hunt, Bianca Jagger, and Anita Pallenberg who are all behind the Rolling Stone success. So Elizabeth Winder is the writer. Um, I'm going to be conducting a private Zoom book club with everyone who joins in the middle of October. And then Mary from True Crime and Academia has an exciting um, book that she's chosen, which is Halloween-themed. So you can join either book club on Patreon, patreo Backslash ivory tower boiler room. And then we'll see that you've joined the book club and we will get in touch with you and send you the Zoom link. Can't wait for you all to hear the Queerest Folk rewatch show and also join our book clubs. Okay, now back to my exciting interview with Chris Adams. Well, and isn't it true that? Correct me if I'm wrong Chris but the director of the Carrie musical um he was basing it off of Lulu the opera by Berg or I remember something about yeah like oh. that almost german expressionism enters the scene like almost bluebeard's castle like those gothic operas
0: yeah almost it was actually the two of the writers who who saw um, Lulu at the Met in New York and were kind of, as they left this is Michael Gore and Lawrence D. Cohen who um, were the composer and the book writer of the show and, and Cohen had also as, he, as you mentioned earlier had worked he'd written the screenplay of the Carrie movie and as they left the opera, Lulu which is sort of this very violent Uh, opera, which involves, you know, all of these crazy twists and violent deaths. Um, They sort of said, you know, if Berg had been alive today, I bet he would write an opera based on Carrie. And they had one of those light bulb moments where they thought, actually, that could really work. And, you know, they didn't end up writing an opera, but they wrote a musical. Um, And then, um, but I think it was a very different musical to the one they ended up seeing staged. Uh, Later, it was taken on by Terry Hans, who, who was the artistic director of the Royal Shakespeare Company. Um, who, who, as we've said, had this very kind of classical background, and in Carrie's story, he did see these kind of um, elements of Greek myths and biblical stories and fairy stories, um, and pulled all of those strands together into quite a unique, um, very uh, unusual staging, let's say, which, which was um, not what people were expecting. It was certainly not realistic to the story. It was very symbolic, very avant-garde. It pulled together all of these references that I think a lot of people just didn't understand, and so they, very quickly dismissed the show, they're expecting to see this kind of high school, high kicking uh, musical because they knew Debbie Allen was there and she was well known for, for choreographing and starring in Fame. Um, and, you know, Debbie went into the show, I think, probably she knew what what Terry was, was trying to do, I think, but she, her background was in these kind of high school set musicals and very aerobic 80s style, um, modern dance styles, which didn't quite gel... Uh, with the directorial and the kind of aesthetic approach that Hans brought to the to the to the story, so yeah, it was a strange mishmash of styles and approaches, but um, we've ended up with this musical that we're still talking about today. So maybe there was something in it.
1: Well, and before Carrie, there was really no high school musical that really had so much dancing like I mean there was Grease but I consider Grease a parody like I don't consider it yeah. I mean but right in the 80s you had Footloose but it wasn't a muse on stage it was right yeah. with Sarah Jessica Parker Kevin Bacon yeah. it's yeah. the film version so like there's so much high school films that you know fame like you've said of course and um I even think thank god it's Friday had come out
0: Um, yeah so like right we're in the disco age so it's yeah yeah. I mean Broadway was a very different place then and this is something that you know I delve into a bit Um, when we think of Broadway now we think of a very different uh, a very different set of shows you know there are shows aimed very squarely at families. There are shows about teenagers and about young people and their problems and their everyday stories. You know, you can go and see Heathers and Six and Legally Blonde and all of these kind of shows, which I know aren't on Broadway anymore, but they're very much in the kind of um, in in the sort of musical theatre fans world. Um, Back in the 80s, there was very little aimed squarely or about young people. it was the idea of putting what was ostensibly a horror story on sh- on stage was, you know, crazy. People, people laughed about it. It was a very, um, you know, Cats was probably the most different and challenging thing on Broadway at the time, because it was this sort of sung through epic mega musical that had imported from the UK Um, and didn't sort of have a linear plot as such, but around Cats were all of these sort of hangovers from from days gone by, lots of revivals of of comfortable musicals that people could just kind of sit and enjoy and let it wash over them, lots of plays. Um, So so stuff like Carrie was very different and, and shocked people and it was very hard to get people to part with their money because you know, it was challenging and it wasn't easy. It was very different to what they were used to. Um, you see it now when when a very challenging new, new piece opens, particularly since COVID, um, you know, people sort of want to know that they're gonna spend their money and get a good night out and, enjoy something that they're familiar with almost. So I think, you know, Harry came about at, at, at a time where people just probably weren't ready for it. Um, the themes of the show, the staging of the show and the kind of cultural surroundings of the show all just didn't quite mesh to make it work. Um, particularly as Cats was taking everybody, you know, people forget how massive Cats was. It was taking everybody's ticket money. It was it was huge. It had, you know, um, it was sold out for years. Ticket prices were driven so high um you know it was scalpers were selling tickets for it extortionately high it it was just this huge dominant force on broadway at the time so any new show particularly anything out of the ordinary was was up for a kind of fight when it came to um to getting audiences
1: well and when Carrie opens it's also the same year as phantom of the opera and chorus line is still kicking no pun intended but um which was i think really shaped a lot late 70s into early 80s really revolutionized the behind the scenes yes. type show when you sure. get dream girls like so it's very fascinating like you said that's why the cultural history i'm such a lover of context like to understand where this fits in and like i wonder with the cast or and the creative team too of course like how much do they now, because there's been so many years, right? We're talking about 1988. It leaves Broadway. Yeah. Um, that do they think a lot or have opened up a lot to you and Holly about that context? Like, have they seen, oh, this kind of now pieced it together. Like you said, your book is an extreme jigsaw puzzle of not <laughs> knowing where, but not having the pieces all in front of you. And Has the cast recognized, oh, okay, this does make sense, though. Like, we were part of a moment. Like, we were part of something really neat.
0: Yeah, I think so. I think a lot of them knew that already. You know, a lot of them said, you know, it felt at the time like it was something very different. And it was the show that, that actors and, and dancers and singers wanted to be in. You know, when you know when the auditions were happening, they heard about this show being developed over the last few years. And they were like, we need to be there. We need to be in the show. And, you know, all of the best dancers at the time were like, you know, we're, we are going to that audition. We have to be involved in this. And I think since then they, they have looked back and thought, you know, it was a very different and daring production. Um, I think, you know, a lot of them with hindsight, particularly, you know, when when we started doing the podcast, we found that the show, um, you may, uh, I'm sure you remember, the cast was kind of divided quite uniquely. Half of them were from the US, half of them were from the UK. Um, and it was a really kind of groundbreaking way of, of casting a show because um, suddenly you had these two very different cultures thrust together um, and a lot, we found that a lot of the um, the cast members hadn't really got back together or spoken to each other since that last day of the show because they were the show closed so quickly. They were kind of sent back to their respective homes very promptly. Um, A lot of them were kind of reuniting and we kind of had this this bizarre um, amazing situation where we were kind of reintroducing them to each other and we were sort of creating and even beyond our podcast we heard about you know they were all getting together on zoom during you know the various different lockdowns and stuff and chatting to each other about it so I think I hope that we sort of um, made them rethink again about their time in the show and and kind of um, think about the, the good times that they had some of the bad times they had but kind of what came out of it in the end. Uh, so many of them are still working in theatre. So many of them are sort of adjacent to theatre. There's loads of dance teachers and people who are involved in, in education and events and things like that. So um, it really did uh, It really did kind of have a huge impact on a lot of people. And I think what I've sort of learned to respect from, from doing these projects is, you know, even if something is dismissed as a flop, it still doesn't, you know, hundreds of people putting thousands of hours into making that thing um and you know people very quickly dismiss things that are seen as a disaster but for a lot of people it was their whole life it was their um you know it was a lot of people's big break it was a lot of people's first time on Broadway or first time at the RSC all of these different things for people um and it's something that really affected them and really touched them and, and was a big part in their lives so I think Um, I loved hearing so many individual stories. Um, And we always tried to go beyond the cast as well. We tried to interview people who had been backstage and who had seen the show and had these kind of uh, different links to it to kind of tell a fuller picture um, from offstage and onstage and backstage and kind of get this as you say, this jigsaw puzzle and put it together, and there are always there will always be pieces of that puzzle missing because there are you know people who are no longer with us, people that we can track down, um, people who just don't want to talk about the show. It would be amazing to get as many of them as possible into a room because I think you'd have this ultimate kind of nostalgia party of people remembering things that they probably still haven't quite remembered. But um, if someone has lots of money and resources, would love to do that. We'd love to come along and and be part of it.
1: Well, I have to say, I think. Debbie Allen has been very evasive, Uh, maybe not evasive, I'll say deliberately, um, which I can understand. I think she did face a lot of the brunt of criticism. She did. Yeah. um, For choreography. Wow. Now all of us Carrie fans. And like you said, these were Probably the best dancers, one of the best dance shows in terms yeah. of choreography and energy and singing at the same time. Like, I don't know, again, when we're going to see someone like Charlotte Dembois do yeah. multiple fouettes as she's <laughs> belt, as they're all belting. And, um, you know, even with Jean Anthony Ray and the Out for Blood song, which is just an incredible number, you can hear the audience in Footage, you know, cheering like even though like they're in on the joke because they started to see even when they were attending, especially on Broadway, it seems like word had gotten around so much that this is a cult hit. Like, okay, this is I remember there's that one audience member who says this is the pig number, and then everyone like they knew, and um, but yeah, it just displays like Sally Ann triplets dancing. Just yeah. these triple threads that I hope one day Debbie Allen, you know, not that she has to open up about it, but I hope she at least sees how many appreciate her her, um, her choreography, that yeah. it was such a style.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. You know, if you pull all of the different threads of Carrie out, there are so many incredible things about it. It's just when you knit them all together, it you know, something doesn't quite work um, in the eyes of so many people. And I think, you know debbie yeah debbie was one of the people who we couldn't get hold of to to speak to um on the podcast or in the book um and i think part of that is because you know debbie allen you know look at her career since then this was mm-hmm. this was something she did for you know a relatively short time 35 years ago and since then she has gone on to become this megastar right she's on you know she's she's directing she's acting she's still dancing she's she's running huge businesses you know she she has probably millions of people trying to talk to her about all of the different things she does and she maybe doesn't want to talk about this project that she did so long ago. Um, But yeah, I think, you know, it's it's one of those personal decisions, isn't it? I think you kind of um, I think you're right. You know, so many people would like to tell her how much they appreciate her work and how much it was part of this uh, this amazing this this amazing show that they love. but yeah, we didn't get the chance to do that, unfortunately. But I hope she maybe will. Maybe she listened to some of the episodes and, and read the book. Who knows? She
1: might have a Yeah. Or right now, I'll we'll shout out Debbie Allen and say yeah. how much we love and appreciate. And I'll clip this out so she can <laughs> hear it. But yes, Debbie, so many of you love. So many love your choreography, and I know everyone who worked with her just like Charlotte, Betty Buckley's wind sprint workouts. Yeah, they just had such great things to say about. I mean, you can see her, her energy, her organic nature. Like that's the thing is fame too. I think of that number hot lunch jam in the movie, especially that one, like it's just unfiltered teen angst. Like it's, and I think that's what is so captured is um, the body tells the story in her choreography or just how she even moves. So yeah,
0: it's hypnotic to watch. And, you know, um, and the cast said, you know, she worked them so hard, but she was also this amazing presence in the room, particularly in the tougher times when they knew things were going wrong or they could sense there were were problems. Debbie was the one who kind of, you know, brought them together. She was the kind of mother figure almost to so many of them uh, and looked after them. Um, and they all admired and looked up to her because they'd seen her on TV, you know, she was this, mm-hmm. yeah, but especially the Brits, you know, to have this, this, this kind of Hollywood star, this TV star, this movie star come in and, and work with you so closely was, you know, this huge opportunity. So yeah, they, they all seem to love working with Debbie.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think we have to mention, or just because I know you've had so many, uh, in the Carrie universe, in your ears, literally, because uh, you are wearing headphones, that... I keep falling out. Did you... <laughs> well, some... I think an aspect we don't talk about is the brilliant... Well, you do, of course, but I'm, I'm speaking for the broad musical theater public here, is the amazing orchestrations. And I'm wondering, did you ever have a chance to talk to, or in your book, you know, for those who I want to purchase your book, um, do you ever get anyone who
0: is part of the orchestra
1: or, like, remembers those orchestrations?
0: So I was able to talk to, in the book, um, the original orchestrators and the original musical directors of the show, and they gave a bit more insight than we were able to include in the podcast. Um which is really fascinating. And I um I I don't read music. I don't I, I don't have a lot of music theory I suppose, but I kind of it's just so interesting to hear people talk about how that process works. And I think learning about that was something that I I really loved when we did the podcast. I always assumed that you know the composer of a musical Work, hands over the music and off you go but no it takes these amazing people to kind of bring the music to life for all of the different instruments for all of the different singers the singing types um so yeah to, to speak to those people was fascinating and um, we didn't actually get to speak to anyone in the band um i really wish we could have done um uh yeah it was just one of those you know there are just quite a lot of them they were you know we the the musical directors and the orchestrators i suppose were used to tell the story of, of the music um, i would have loved to speak to, to to have spoken to harold wheeler who kind of um re-orchestrated the show when it got to broadway wasn't able to reach him but um he sort of changed the sound of the show it became uh, became a very different sounding show once it got to new york um so to compare the two is really interesting And and you know people who are very intense fans of the show can listen to those bootlegs and those individual performance recordings and, and see almost the daily changes in the music and how it was changed how the sound of the show was changing as time passed. And I think that's such a unique and amazing thing to be able to do with a show from so long ago. You know, usually you get a cast recording uh, of a show and that's kind of its definitive record. Carrot doesn't have a cast recording, but it does have this kind of archive of different audience recordings, both audio and, and video recordings from different places. And so to be able to kind of do that analysis and see how the show was changing day to day kind of shows you how, um, how slightly chaotic it was, but also how, um, you know, changes were being made daily and how people were having to learn new stuff in the day and perform it that evening. So yeah, a really interesting angle to to, to hear about, I think.
1: Yeah, well, and it's interesting too, how in your book, you draw so much attention to, like you've brought it up in this discussion, but the us compared to the uk like that's even in the way the music transfers over to broadway like the what i would describe is there's a very rock heavy aspect that happens on broadway like even in the opening overture that like it's almost even more brassy and i wonder again is that because of the broadway audience is that for an american type sound and then muting it a little for Royal Shakespeare Company, um, even the cast. And the cast had that kind of personality too. I just remember that like the Brits learned about being more energetic, not energetic, but being like blunt and outspoken. outspoken, And then the Americans learned how to be a little more disciplined.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think, yeah, there was this, the Brits talk about this kind of friendly tension that developed between the Brits and the Americans when they all got together because the Americans were so kind of forthright and you know they charged to the front of the rehearsal room and do their, their, their numbers, whereas the Brits would always kind of hang back a little bit and be a bit judgy. Um, but by the end of the process, they were all kind of so, you know, so close and learned so much from each other, as you say. I think the music points are really interesting. And um, the reason given by the writers for the change was that you know originally, they were basically they were trying to merge the two worlds of the show into one cohesive sound. Originally, there were two orchestrators, one who kind of tackled the more slightly more operatic uh, mother and daughter numbers between Carrie and her mother. The other orchestrator kind of dealt with those pop uh, pop numbers that were set in the school scenes. I think by the time they got to Broadway, um, according to the writers, they wanted the sound to be a bit more cohesive and and, and similar across the show. Uh, but I think that I'm sure there are kind of um, culture, other cultural reasons for, you know, what people were used to hearing on Broadway. Um, Wheeler had recently orchestrated Dreamgirls on Broadway. And so he was kind of like, it still is, you know, he still orchestrates shows now, but at the time he was very uh, flavor of the month, I guess that's uh, the phrase He's, he is. You know, people loved his work in Dreamgirls and perhaps they wanted to, emulate that, that success and that sound um so yeah there are so many different depends who you ask you get different answers for different things happening on the show people remember things so differently sometimes but um but yeah it's it's a really interesting uh, question
1: well so what was something and again I don't want you to reveal it all because it's in your <laughs> book but like what was something that you learned because you've been with carry the Musical um so long in just Thinking about it, listening, hearing different insights. Is there something that really blew your mind, especially when you were writing your book, like something that came out because of the writing process that we would be surprised about?
0: One thing that always, I mean, I've, I've been kind of living in this material for so long that I forget what sort of surprised me the first time around, <laughs> if that makes sense, because there are so many brilliant individual stories from people. I think um, there are so many stories that make you just sort of say that can't be true. You know, when you hear about these slightly chaotic rehearsals and performances where things would go wrong and um, you know, the whole Barbara Cook story is just this facet, the more you delve into it, the the more brilliant and hilarious it becomes because Barbara was playing Carrie's mum here in the UK and basically hated the whole experience. When I was writing the book, I I spoke to someone who was a big fan of hers at the time and he had sent her a letter uh, saying that her performance in Carrie, despite the rest of the show not being to this person's taste, her performance had been great and Barbara sent this brilliant letter back where she was like I hate it there are only eight days left and then I can get out of this you know piece of crap and you know she just these brilliant kind of communications from from Barbara who just sounds like the most hilarious person one thing that I was really surprised about um the kind of ultimate twist of this story because you sort of assume that at the end of the tale everyone goes their separate ways um, I, I found that Terry Hans, the director, later worked on another musical with the producer, Friedrich Kurtz, who had kind of co-funded all of Carrie and taken a lot of the um, the blame. You know, there are all of these stories about him closing the show um, and, and sort of trying to cling back as much money as he could because the show was just sort of hemorrhaging cash by this point because of the, the poor reviews and everything else that happened. The two of them got together like a few years later in Germany to make another musical which, again, the leading lady ended up leaving, the show closed early, it got terrible reviews, and the whole kind of story on a smaller scale just repeated itself, and I was absolutely kind of blown away by this, because I'd assumed the two of them probably would have just fallen out and never spoken to each other ever again after, you know, the Carrie debacle, I suppose, but to find these records, you know, searching for them, suddenly realizing that they'd got back together to try again, and it still hadn't worked. Um, So that was a really interesting story. But you know, every cast member, every person we spoke to brought these uh, unique stories to the to the table. And, uh, you know, the it was an interesting study in people's memories as well, because I think this, this top line version of the, the Carrie story had kind of cemented itself into the consciousness of so many people. We called it the sort of Wikipedia version of, of what had happened, because you get these sort of two or three uh, myths, I suppose, about about disasters that had taken place. Um, and it, even people who were there found themselves repeating these stories until they sort of realized, actually, maybe that's not quite what happened. And you start to kind of pizzle away at people's memories and and. The stuff that they remember when you do that is really fascinating. So I think it's it's been a really interesting study in, in, in memory and and what actually happened and, and, and kind of getting to the bottom of, of of these tall tales has been really fascinating.
2: Hey Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners and true crime friends. You've heard me gush over this incredible woman and her beautiful products. I'm talking about Mandy Made It. Mandy makes customized and original crochet and cre cut goods. They are the perfect, unique, one of a kind gift for literally anyone in your life. And she makes incredible home decor. I still have my pumpkins that I put out every fall. I just love them. Check her out on Instagram at M-A-N-D-E-E Made It or search Mandy Made It on Facebook. To order, just slide into her DMs and if you mention the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you will receive a free personalized gift with your first order. So, go on Instagram and look up at Mandy Made It and Mandy is spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. Again, her handle is at Mandy Made It, Mandy spelled M-A-N-D-E-E, and ordered today.
1: LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? Visit their writer's guidelines. The link is located at the bottom of their homepage. And if you have any questions, email Stephen Hemrick. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N dot... H-E-M-R-I-C-K at glreview.org. The GNLR and its readers can't wait to see what you have to say. Hi, everyone. This is Andrew, and I am interrupting what I know is such an exciting Ivory Tower Boiler Room episode to tell you all about one of my favorite podcasts. It's called That Old Gay Classic Cinema, and it's hosted by Christian Garcia. Christian is joined with guest co-host to talk about classic cinema films that we know and love, and he analyzes them through a queer lens. So he's talked about The Sound of Music, Alfred Hitchcock, The Wizard of Oz, Sleeping Beauty, 101 Dalmatians, and recently Hello, Dolly. I actually was on his first ever episode to talk about my love of the sound of music and playing Captain Von Trapp in my high school musical. Then I was joined with Mary DePippi, the host of True Crime in Academia, and our friend Travis Roundtree to talk about Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. Mary just had Christian on True Crime and Academia to talk about female poisoners including the evil queen from snow white and actual real life female poisoners so christian's podcast is the best you must add it to your listen list after you listen to this episode make sure you head over to that old gay classic cinema on apple and spotify make sure you follow him on instagram at that old gay classic cinema and he's also on tiktok don't forget tiktok okay I can't wait for you you all to listen to That Old Gay Classic Cinema. And now, back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Yeah, well, and, like, I know Eric has his own views on the whole, like, ancient Greek. Like, he's more in, you know, everyone should listen if they haven't, but... um, He was, like, we did a whole deep dive of just the source material, the ancient Greek themes. And, like, he was more, he wants to explore the psyche of Terry Hands, like the direct, more of the directorial approach. But I think that what's so important you talk about, Chris, is how we create myths, or how myths are built, and in our own minds and memory. And, like, the whole, if someone had misheard about Make it like Greece, like Greece the musical or ancient Greece is that kind of slippage, and again, like a whisper down the lane of, you know, the only ones who will really know is Terry Hans, who sadly is no longer here. Maybe Debbie Allen, because she had give, been given direction by him, mm. and even the creators might not have been in that room when that happened, because, like as you yeah. talk about, the composer and the writer. They're not, yeah. like, they're not there in the thick of yeah. it in the rehearsal process with Debbie yeah. Allen and Terry Hans.
0: Yeah, especially on this show, you know... Um... The writers talk quite a lot about feeling excluded from the rehearsal process because they tried they they didn't like the work that was unfolding in front of them it wasn't what they envisioned and they talk about being essentially cut out of it and not being able to kind of give their notes and and not being able to make adjustments even when the show had been planned here in the uk they weren't able to kind of step in and and suggest changes or um you know that's the story according to them and um yeah so it's 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 a unique show in that it was it, it, it suffered from a, you know, it became a bit more fractured from what it was originally envisioned to be, I suppose. Um, but yeah, it is it is an interesting case study in urban legends and myths and uh, what becomes true in people's minds. And I think that's been part of the pleasure of diving into this story is kind of trying to unpick that truth and, and find out what really happened. I was I was amazed to find that, you know, there, someone hadn't already tried to do it. You know, um, it's such a such a kind of infamous story that you know a lot of the tales had just become true and uh as you say we unpick the grease versus Greece thing uh in, in a bit more detail in the book um and and yeah I mean your, your episodes with Eric were fascinating and you know we've always said that you know we, we'd never tried to we do we did have a couple of episodes where we described what happened in the show from the perspective of all the people who were watching it and taking part in it and I do the same in the book across a couple of chapters by piecing together kind of review quotes and Mm -hmm. quotes from people involved um but it's fascinating to hear someone like Eric who is a creative person you know a director a writer uh rip the show to shreds and, and kind of Try and piece it back together and try and figure out what was happening in the mind of the people who created it really interesting um and uh, yeah i encourage people to to watch that if they haven't already because uh, it's a really deep dive into what you know terry hands may have been thinking and as you say i wish we could find out more i was lucky enough to find some some old cassette tapes in a library archive which um with a journalist interviewing terry Hans and the designer of the show ralph Colte, and the costume designer alex reed um so to, to hear those voices come to life after having you know read so much about them was just fascinating and there's some great um new insight on the approach to the design and the look of the show that i was able to include in the book thanks to those tapes so i love that the show is still inspiring people to kind of figure it out and, and you know try and work out what was intended to be happening um yeah it's it's fascinating and as I say so few shows that close so quickly get that kind of deep analysis mm-hmm. and I think it's brilliant that people are, are now doing that
1: or that the show that's something that could be considered a flop actually gets a revival um yeah. like that that to me is not what makes it not a flop because. Um, like you said, flops are usually ones we can't recall in memory. and but, like, just to, you know, as we're nearing the end, I think we should definitely, if you could touch upon the revival, because, like I said, that the Broadway cast was a type of star making. I mean, Betty Buckley was already very well known. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned cats. We think of Betty Buckley in memory. yeah, yeah. Uh, but that, you know, Lindsay, Still performing as the narrator in Joseph now. Yeah. Charlotte, I saw her in Pippin. She's in Chicago yeah. all the time. I mean, yeah. um, Sally Ann Triplett has done so much in the West End. Yeah. Um, but with the revival, you then have um, you know, cast members who were in Anastasia. I'm thinking of Christy yeah. as Anastasia Altamere. Uh, and then I'm trying to remember, is it how do you pronounce her first name? I'm thinking of Jenna. Uh, she, Jenna, thank you, Jenna who played Thor, yeah. Princess Diane.
0: Yes, Diana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And Derek Lanner, who was also yes. in that station, is I think currently on Rouge on Broadway, yeah, who just came straight out of college to do Carrie. You know, he was young at the wow. time and had sort of interrupted his college career to do it. And now it's this huge... Broadway star, as so many of them are. Um, and of course, Maren Maisie, who played Margaret White in that revival, who sadly, again, is no longer with us. and ju- It's just this force of, you know, uh, it's just this extraordinary performer. Um, and, and you know, we, in the podcast, we were only able to spend an episode and a bit really on the revival. Um, in the book, I was so happy to be able to talk to to some of those people and, and kind of expand that section and figure out how you take the show, which. You know, people have mocked and laughed at for so long and reinvent it and make it a show that is that appeals to young performers and young audiences today. Um, And some people loved that revival, some people hated that revival, but it kind of gave Carrie a new life. And, you know, now when people are doing that show, they don't think of it as a flop. You know, when people Mm -hmm. are performing that show in community um, theatre groups or in colleges, they're really excited to be part of it it's a really unique challenging show for people to be part of it makes you really think about how to do you know the staging how to how to um you know the, the music is challenging it's 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 a really fun modern uh, unusual show to do and i think you know the fact that a whole new generation of people are discovering this story that that king created all of those years ago in a different form again uh, is really amazing and you know there's there's a brilliant sort of story behind that revival of the demand from fans to see the show reinvented through the 90s when so many people heard about this show for the first time but weren't able to to experience it it was always kind of just out of their reach and they were able to watch crackly old videos of it and listen to cassette tapes of it but they weren't ever able to see it they could just hear about it and it was this sort of tale passed down so to to kind of um to have that force of fandom behind it to, to eventually lead to a reinvention of the story, I think is is a really amazing end uh, to the, the the tale of Carrie the musical.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I was actually there in Greenwich Village in the revival, I saw it. Um, yeah. And it is just fascinating to think of, you know, that there was an Anastasia, Princess Diana, you know, Derek, <laughs> In Moulin Rouge. Again, I think Maren Maisie I had also seen in Next to Normal. She was incredible. Such a beautiful, empowering presence, performer, powerhouse. Um, And again, I think it's the material. Like why there's been so many movie adaptations of Carrie. And I think we'll continue to see iterations. Um, I mean, I always describe the original musical. I mean, um, I prefer my preference is for the original because i'm a huge fan of the choreography um but i also think both have different planes like for me the revival like you said it can go on in colleges and community theaters because of resonating with mental health bullying is more explicit in this version where i think the original to me, it has more of a psychoanalytic libidinal desire. Like, sex, <laughs> to me, sex and like death are really in the original. Like, yes, there's something yeah, yeah. so erotic in the original with the high schoolers that comes through the movement of their bodies. But again, yeah. I don't think the original would have been performed by colleges. As, no, like,
0: that's true. That's it's true. very
1: hard to put <laughs> off, to put on. yeah
0: but you know this new version is very adaptable um you know it's been as as we talk about in the book a bit it's been done in huge theaters and tiny intimate theaters it's been done Mm -hmm. in immersive settings you know directors can really put their own stamp on it and and pull it to Pieces and throw it back together again, and uh, I think that's brilliant. You know, I think the 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 original production, as you say, was uh, it's, it's 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 own special creation. It's very rigid, and I can't imagine how anyone would have taken it and done it in a different way. Maybe it's possible. So lots of people certainly wanted to do that through the through the nineties. You know, drag queens and other people. You know, so many different people were desperate to get their hands on this, and they weren't allowed to do anything with it. But now you can kind of take it and make it your own, which is which is really interesting. And it is a story that you can genuinely uh doing lots of different ways and and it's great to it was great to hear from directors who would love the original but now we're able to take the story and kind of um kind of you know stage it in different ways and and bring new people introduce new people to it
1: mm-hmm. but I will say to Dean Pitchford um you know Larry Cohen um and why am I forgetting
0: Michael Gore
1: Michael Gore thank you um bad. There is a thirst for the original to like be done as a concert version um, with its choreography intact. But again, we could all, thankfully we have footage. Um, But you know, for my final question, Chris, this has just been so wonderful. I'm just curious, is there any other musical, again, I don't think anything can compare to what we've talked about, what you've put together of this rich cultural history. But do you think that there's Excluding Rocky Horror Picture Show, because I know Mm -hmm. that that would be a popular one. But do you think there's another musical that does have like a cult fan base, something that's like now emerging? Like maybe people are starting to think about it and it's been forgotten in history, Mm -hmm. but has always maybe had a small subset of a fan base.
0: Yeah, Holly and I have spoken for hours and hours about this and, and tried to figure out how we do a kind of, out for Blood 2, where we find another musical and, and and do the same treatment and we've really struggled to find anything that has the same kind of status as Carrie. Um, you know, the the closest big musical flop I think is um the spider-man musical turn off the dark which which is mired in lawsuits and all sorts of stuff and there was a brilliant book about it by someone involved in the show which kind of does the job right I don't think you can really improve on the book that exists about the spider-man the, the chaotic story of the spider-man musical um and so we sort of start to think you know maybe there's a version where we talk about musicals that that um you know Weren't flops, but have interesting creation stories. Um, and, and one story I love is Little Shop of Horrors, which is you know a, a sort of cult musical, which certainly can't be described as a flop, but has a similar kind of interesting, twisty backstory of different versions. You know, it started as a as a B movie and and had very small fringe productions, big Broadway productions, and now continues to be performed in different ways. So I think that's a really interesting one. But there are lots of there are some flops. Um, which kind of closed very quickly and are now being reassessed in similar ways to the way Carrie has been, you know, merrily we roll along is one which you know closed very quickly in its original incan- uh, incarnation and now you know has been revived successfully there's a movie being made over like a period of 30 yeah. years or something um you know stuff like stories like that which which were dismissed very quickly but have have come back parade is a really interesting one you know parade um is a brilliant brilliant musical but didn't last very long in its original broadway show and is now back and, and new people are discovering it and um and and kind of being introduced to it for the first time so i don't think there's ever you know as the poster said uh there's never been a musical like her when it came to carrie and i think um there isn't ever going to be quite the same twisty turny uh chaotic story of a of a musical um the book that came out very quickly after carrie close was called not since carrie and that the premise of that book was that there would never be a flop quite as as disastrous as carrie was um and I'm not quite sure if there ever will be a story quite like this one. Um, Maybe there will be one day, but I'd love to, if anyone has any suggestions for what we could talk about in quite as much detail, I'd love to hear them. But um, I think that, you know, this story is so unique and has so many uh, different threads to it, that it would be hard to find something uh, to talk about in quite as much depth. Yeah. I
1: was going to say, there's definitely though, a lot of musicals, um, gone in the middle of the night with marquees disappearing. Like, I mean, I know you had an episode about Rebecca, but I remember seeing that marquee. That was a great episode you had, but even Tuck Everlasting, I know it did show, but then I think it like quickly closed. Um, But yeah, I'm even thinking, I love that whole little shop of horrors. Again, you don't, it's not like you don't have to talk about um, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, but I, right. That's not a flop. Um, But Yeah, yeah. I think that there's something about the Gothic musical, which just makes for really tricky, uh, a labyrinthian type excursion, like Lestat I'm thinking of um, had that type of origin. It was just um, so many, Dance with (laughs) the Vampires, I think was another, Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of potential, I think, for your part two with Holly
0: yeah Um, but we wouldn't have to change our name with those shows right we need something that's a bit dark and bloody to to make the name make sense so um yeah yeah any idea yeah only
1: (laughs) only uh bloody musicals Sweeney Todd's on Broadway now that one um but
0: yeah thank you we we might need to do a mega mix of like bloody deathly musicals
1: (laughs) yeah but if I guess if we think about it Sweeney Todd is one of the most highly successful gory yeah. musicals. Yeah, um,
2: yeah.
1: But gore Definitely. is tough to do on
0: stage. It is. Um, it is.
1: So as we know from Carrie and the Blood
0: <laughs> yes, uh, scene. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Don't ask anyone to do Blood on stage. It's, it no, no, do not.
1: <laughs> we can do water on stage, but when it comes to Blood, I think they haven't yeah. figured out that uh, technical <laughs> aspect yet. Um. But Chris, this has just been so wonderful. I would love if you could just, you know, share out um, how everyone out here can follow you, um, your podcast, you know, get your hands on your book. Yeah mention it all
0: <laughs> yeah I, I mean now is the time if you want to go back you can listen to the whole series of Alpha blood it's on the broadway podcast network but you can download it on you know apple and spotify and all the usual places um and the book is out now it came out this week i'm going to hold the copy up in a kind of like advertising way uh, and you can order it from uh you know your favorite bookstores or direct from the publisher bloomsbury um yeah i hope people enjoy it i hope it introduces people to the story um either via the podcast or the book it's been it's been a real pleasure to tell the tell the tale of Carrie
1: yeah well it was wonderful having you here I can't wait for your next
0: thank you I
1: can't wait for your next iteration let's see what happens I'm sure you and Holly you have uh you know magic plans and up we'll your sleeves yeah, yes. yeah
0: yeah, definitely there's always something to talk about in the world of carrie so we'll probably keep coming back
1: <laughs> oh there is i'm sure um you could even like start to deep dive the origin of the
0: movies so yeah maybe 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 let's, Don't give us let's ideas. see
1: yeah well and you know stephen king is out there maybe eventually that's
0: true, that's true. give us a call stephen
1: yeah, Stephen, we we need we need your uh need you. I know he loved the musicals. So we need your uh yeah. you know, reflection right now. Yes, okay. That's amazing. <laughs> thank you so much, Chris, and um this has just been thank so you. wonderful. Yeah,
0: thank you so much for having me. It's been great to talk.
1: Yep, and thanks to all out there and you know, definitely get your hands on Chris's book and All Things Carry. Okay. Bye everyone.
0: Thank you. Bye.
1: Hi, this is Dr. Andrew Rimby. I want to thank you so much for listening to the ITBR and TCIA episodes. Make sure, if you don't, follow, rate, and review us on Spotify and Apple podcasts. Also, make sure you follow ITBR on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room and TCIA on TikTok and Instagram at True Crime and Academia. Also, we have a brand new Patreon membership system. So I just want to explain it to you all quickly. So if you want to become an ITBR student, it is $5 a month, you get ad free ITBR and TCIA episodes and video interviews. If you want to become an ITBR professor for $10 a month, you get all of those ad free benefits. But you also get access to both the ITBR and TCIA book clubs, you can join both book clubs, get ad free episodes plus you're going to get all of our extra video episodes. So I am rewatching Queer as Folk. Christian Garcia from That Old Gay Classic Cinema is joining us and he's re-watching Smash. Um, Mary is going to start to rewatch shows as well. You even get access to what I'm calling the ITBR Teaches. So if I'm recapping a movie or a TV show, including Barbie, Um, Halloween movies and horror films, you get access to that as well. And then I also am offering consultation services. So for $30, you get your first initial consultation with me. It's a one hour private Zoom. I will help create your podcast, your media brand. How do you navigate academia as an undergrad or a grad student? Do you need help with technology? It could be teaching tools, Spotify for podcasters, video editor so- software. Do you wanna expand your social media presence as an artist, writer, podcaster, or academic? Do you want help on how to create a public humanities identity like I've created for myself? So I now I'm offering that consultation service. You can find more info about it on Patreon. And you also can join our book clubs if you wanna just join the ITBR book club or the TCIA book club, you can do that for $4 a month. Patreon.com backslash ivorytower boiler room. That is p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash ivory tower boiler room. Thanks to the team, Mary Depippi, our chief contributor, and thank you to our two new interns from Stony Brook University, Jonathan and Sarah. Bye everyone, until next time.